Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in our look at the book of Hebrews. This has really been a very interesting study. We're in chapter 11, and we'll be starting in verse 32. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Greg, please. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to to come together and study your word. We thank you that you speak to us uh, by your spirit through your word. And we thank you that you have listed here the the heroes of the faith, uh, people that have uh, gone through so much uh, because of their faith and endured. And some have been sacrificed. And we pray, Lord, that we will have that kind of faith to move forward as you direct us. We just ask your blessing now as we study your word in your name. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's good to be back with everyone. We are, as mentioned, going through the heroes of faith in uh, chapter 11 of the letter to the Hebrews. And I'd like to begin by having someone read verses 32 through 38 in Hebrews 11, please. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain even a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Right. Thank you very much. All right. So... We're continuing on after uh, speaking of Moses and the end of the Exodus and the entrance into Canaan or Palestine here by going through the period of the judges and the early kings. And he just summarizes uh, all of these and kind of mixes some of their situations together. Part of this list is quoted from 1 Samuel 12, as Samuel berates the people of Israel for 
choosing a king so they could be like the nations around about them. There, he says, Yahweh sent Jeroboam and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side. And these are two other names for Gideon and Barak. So our author has a ready recollection of the Old Testament, as did his audience, as they heard it read every Saturday of their lives. And they couldn't afford individual copies of these scrolls. And so they memorized either because they listened to it so much or because they made a conscious effort to memorize these scriptures. So he's kind of spitting this out from First Samuel, and then he adds Samuel and David to the list there. Gideon was Israel's champion against the Midianites, who were more or less descendants of Abraham, and was a numberless host of Midianites that descended upon Israel, and Gideon with 300 men and some deception authored by God himself threw the Midianite host into panic and won a huge victory. Barak was commander of the Israelite army against a large Canaanite army led by Sisera and defeated the Canaanites, but not without the incredible help of the prophetess Deborah and Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, who uh, managed to drive a tent peg through Sisera's temples after the battle. <laughs> so really, it's a, it's a great uh, episode of women having to pull the men along by the nose to get them to do what they should have done without help there. And interesting that Barak is mentioned instead of Jael and Deborah, who are the real heroes uh, in this case. Samson is familiar to most of us. He was uh, not the most godly man, but he had striking confidence in the unseen God of Israel, unshakable confidence as we see throughout his uh, whole life and in his death when he committed suicide and took out a huge amount of the Philistine nobility by collapsing the pillars in the building where they were all feasting, and he was entertainment for them. Jephthah was another judge of Israel who led the uh, Israelites who were on the east bank of the Jordan River against the Ammonites. He had a few issues, but again, he had uh, great confidence in the power of God. David is the only king mentioned by name. David, of course, had a significant number of moral faults, but he was a man after God's own heart, which I personally believe refers to his obsession with the coming spiritual kingdom of God, which I believe is really the theme of the entire Bible. And so David was able to get to the heart of the matter and, and was obsessed with the same thing that God was obsessed with. He received a lot of promises from God, just like Abraham and others that we've already discussed here. But he received special promises regarding his house, which would continue forever and would rule over Israel forever. 
And this is tied to a phrase that is repeated in numerous parts of the Bible, the sure mercies of David, which I believe refers to Israel abiding in contentment under the rule of God in the kingdom of God. Because God describes when the ten northern tribes were ripped apart from Israel and scattered to the four corners of the earth, it is described as they are turning their backs on the sure mercies of David. And it was predicted that in the last days of Israel, that all of Israel would be restored and gathered back together to experience again the sure mercies of David. And this is the theme that we saw over and over uh, in the book of Acts, the ingathering of Israel, which we know as the Great Commission, as the apostles went throughout the entire world and then brought people into the kingdom of God. And we looked at a lot of ways that this fulfilled the promise to gather back together and revive, bring back to life in God's presence the 12 tribes of Israel at the same time that they were being translated from a physical carnal kingdom into an unseen uh, spiritual kingdom. And anyone that wants to examine that, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of our MP3s of the book of Acts. Samuel stands out even in this list as someone that had absolute confidence in the God of Israel. In one uh, Jewish uh, book, it's described that Samuel, beloved by his Lord, a prophet of the Lord, established the kingdom and anointed rulers over his people. It's kind of funny because he did that somewhat reluctantly because he knew that the people were rejecting Yahweh as their king. But he did actually establish the kingdom of Israel, the old physical kingdom, which was a shadow and type of the everlasting kingdom of God. Samuel has been described by one scholar named Faraday as God's emergency man. They lost uh, the Ark of the Covenant when Samuel was a boy, and he kept Israel's hopes up and uh, saw things through until the Ark was restored to Israel. In the days of Samuel, we first meet the schools of the prophets, which then kind of led into the men that we know as the prophets of the Bible, the men that uh, wrote the books of prophecy. The promises uh, to David, jumping back to that, were regarding his house and, of course, the fulfillment of all those promises as is the fulfillment of every other promise we found in the Old Testament, was Jesus Christ. Jesus was a direct descendant of David by blood, and so he restored David's house to the throne of Israel. Just unfortunately for our dispensational friends, it wasn't the exact same physical chair that David sat in. Again, it's a figurative concept, the throne of David in the book of Psalms and then quoted in the book of Acts. Moving past uh, the time of David into the days of captivity, we have Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here alluded to with the mouths of lions and 
quenching the force of fire in verses 33 and 34. These were all men who refused to worship the gods of Babylon, and they were willing to lay down their lives without hesitation rather than deny the God of Israel. And they can't follow the law of Moses. It's a whole study in and of itself. But while Israel is in captivity, there are no sacrifices. There are no feast days. They cannot follow the law of Moses. There's a good chance that all four of these men were actually eunuchs and had been mutilated, which would exclude them from the congregation of Israel. And yet they, in spite of many, many problems, they remained faithful to the God of Israel, and the God of Israel remained faithful to them, which is a really a foreshadowing of what would happen after the temple and the priesthood and everything was permanently destroyed in the first century. The audience of this letter to the Hebrews could possibly have been facing a fiery ordeal within months of receiving this letter. Uh, we know that Nero hung on crosses or impaled believers who would not renounce Jesus and uh, lit them on fire as human torches for the fun of it and for entertainment. And the, a vast number of the first generation of believers were destroyed by this unholy union of Roman power with the Judean leadership, which I, I believe is described in the book of Revelation as the harlot riding on the beast. It's pretty easy to really see that that's what is being spoken of there rather than any uh, imminent event we might find in the newspaper today, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> uh, but uh, these examples are of immediate relevance to our audience. Peter writes of similar ordeals uh, about to fall in chapter 4 of First Peter. Many other prophets did not deny God and uh, were destroyed here as described in verses 36 through 38 with mocking, scourging, chains, imprisonment. Isaiah, according to oral tradition, was executed by being sawn in two while he was still alive. And uh, he may be who was in mind here in verse 37. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. The world was not worthy of such people. Our writer kind of sums it up. Uh, again, well, you could go on and on. Jeremiah suffered immensely for refusing to renounce God's word, the message God had given to him. And in the, in the New Testament, the apostles, who also, of course, served as prophets, all met with violent ends, uh, according to tradition, except for John himself. John the Baptist, of course, uh, who was the returning Elijah, meets a lot of these descriptive phrases as well. The 44th Psalm kind of sums this up. For thy sake we are slain all the day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Confidence in God does not guarantee comfort in this life. 
and this was no doubt one of the lessons that the writer of this letter was trying to instill. All right, uh, any other thoughts or comments here on these verses down through 38? Just a wide, wide variety of outcomes with all these people with the, the faith, but they, they stood up for their beliefs. Yep, some were carried through it, others had to give everything. All right, well, let's uh, read the last two verses, uh, verses 39 and 40 then. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. All right, very good. Now, back in, uh, in verse 35, it talks about women receiving their dead children back or being tortured to death refusing to accept deliverance in order to achieve a better resurrection. So the question is, what is a better resurrection compared to a lesser resurrection? Because here, these did not receive what they had promised because God had provided something better. And so I would contend that in context with the rest of this letter, what's being contrasted again over and over is the physical to the spiritual. If you receive the gift of physical resurrection, well, that's that's a pretty amazing gift, but what's the problem with it? It's going to end. Yeah, it's, uh, it's temporary. If you are replaced into a living physical body, that body just begins to age uh, again. If If the gospel were about physical healing it could be considered a complete and total failure because every Christian who has lived for the last 2,000 years has physically died uh, so far, no matter how many times they've been healed through prayer or uh, laying on of hands or anything else. So physical healing and physical resurrection have only limited value, I would suggest here. But this better resurrection that was in mind in verse 35, I would suggest, is a spiritual resurrection, just like Paul describes in his letter to the Corinthians. And here, as as the conclusion of this uh, Heroes Hall of Fame, none of these received what they had been promised, yet many of them did receive physical gifts in one sense or another, the children of Israel did receive the land promised to Abraham in totality, the Bible assures us, but yet our author can confidently state they did not receive what had been promised because God had something better with us in view. And that's the theme of this whole letter. Abraham looked beyond the physical land and a physical city to a spiritual city, which, of course, is the new Jerusalem. And the physical fulfillment of these promises was not the full fulfillment, but the spiritual fulfillment was, and that could not occur until Israel was ingathered in to the New Jerusalem, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, described in detail in the book of Acts. Once the spiritual temple of God was under construction, 
God could dwell in these living stones that made up that temple, and God could tabernacle on earth, as had been pictured imperfectly before by the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon, or to an even lesser extent, the second temple of Ezra and Nehemiah, and then of Herod the Great. None of these heroes of faith, no matter how great their confidence, no matter what wonderful things God did for them physically, they could not reach perfection apart from that first generation of believers. And when Christ was transfigured, we saw Moses and Elijah there with him, but then they faded away and Christ remained. None of the heroes of faith could be perfected outside of the body of Christ. We give up our individual identity in a sense to all be part of the body of Christ. We all have to be together in the body of Christ to do anything of value in God's sight. That doesn't mean we lose our individual thoughts or strengths or weaknesses, but only in Christ can we do the good works that God has intended for us to do from before the foundation of the earth. So we all had to be brought together as the body of Christ for these Old Testament heroes to truly receive the fulfillment of these promises. Even though they knew that it was far in the future, they could sense the fulfillment. They had such confidence in God that to them the fulfillment was real, and they took power from this confidence to press against the flow of evil in their own lifetime, in their own place, in their own generation, and to continue to set the stage to clear the ground, so to speak, so that God could eventually build his spiritual kingdom. But now, at the time of this writing of this letter, all of these promises had been fulfilled. The age of the new covenant had dawned. We and they together now have unfettered access to God through Jesus Christ as fellow citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. So this better plan would include all of the better things he's already gone through in this letter, the better hope, the better promises, the better covenant, the better sacrifices, the better and abiding possession, which is not physical real estate in Palestine, and the better resurrection, the spiritual resurrection, which is their heritage and ours. All right. Any thoughts or comments here on chapter 11? Did the present-day Israelites then block themselves forever out of God's promise when they accepted the Talmudic laws and turned their back on Jesus? Or are they still perfectible? Can they still be perfected by, by acceptance? Well, uh, this gets into the question of the unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I personally don't believe that can really be committed today. I believe that this was specific to the miraculous workings of the Holy Spirit in the first century, which was to give all those people another chance. That first generation 
doesn't get another chance. They were given all kinds of special manifestations of God's spirit to repent before they were utterly destroyed. So I believe that that applied to them in the first century. And that today, you know, I I mean, somebody practicing witchcraft, Satan worship, or Kabbalism, Talmudic, Rabbinic Judaism, I mean, these things are all evil. But I believe it is possible for anyone practicing those things to turn away from them and turn to the living God and to become part of the kingdom of God. That's just my thought on it, and others may choose to differ with that. So we have a responsibility to testify to these good guys we know today and the Jewish Voice for Peace and other organizations who side with us sometimes on our plots and ideas and plans, but still don't know anything about Jesus. Well, I certainly believe so. You never know when you're going to get an opportunity to slip in something, and and that's when a good working knowledge of the Old Testament comes in extremely handy because you can you can use a principle in the Hebrew scriptures that they are familiar with to, you know, maybe point the way towards Jesus Christ. One of the really nicest Jewish guys I know happened to mention to me the other day that he, he's in a class studying the Talmud, and I didn't quite know what to say. What would you have said? <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure. I, You know, the context, the lead-up to that, I'm sure I would have said something. That's a golden opportunity, I, but I can't say exactly uh, what I would have said. I don't know the personality. You know, I don't know the context, but that would be an interesting opportunity. Well, I think I missed that one. And so we don't know what our actions will do, but hopefully what we reflect will make people curious and maybe want to ask us, you know, why we do the things we do. All right, well, thanks, Mark. That was a great lesson. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.